As a university lecturer, Richard Hughes Gibson recently discovered that the pandemic had given new urgency to hand movements. Here he reviews a curious 17th century book that explores the natural language of the hand composed. From the Hedgehog Review, read by Sharon Bott, for Curio. After a year of teaching almost exclusively on Zoom, I made my triumphant return to in-person instruction in August 2021. Except it wasn't so triumphant. Throughout the previous academic year, I'd assumed that teaching in person, even in masks, was far, far easier than the education by video conferencing that I was exhausting myself to provide. Within five minutes of my first masked in-person class, however, I discovered how very wrong that assumption had been. Now, to be clear, I'm not complaining about my institution's masking policy. Masking makes the meeting of relative strangers in a college classroom possible. Still, I haven't perceived how hard it is to read the responses of one's audience when the most expressive part of the face is hidden. Were my students grinning at me or glowering? Were they yawning under there? Halfway through my first in-person session, I was certain that I'd lost my charisma during my year on the screen. A few days later, I reported these difficulties to my spouse, a fellow professor and a veteran of mask teaching, and was greeted with a knowing smile. Yeah, she said, the rest of the body has to compensate. She pointed me, in particular, to the hands. So I began to watch the hands of my students, friends and children when they were engaged in masked conversation. And I observed that the most effective communicators delivered the most histrionic performances. They threw their hands up to signify exaltation and despair. They thrust their hands forward in supplication. They threw their hands down at their sides in grief and resignation. They cut their hands across the air in defiance. You might miss a few muffled words but you couldn't miss the point of what they were saying. I'd known people with very expressive digits before. Now, though, I saw. In the midst of this observation period, I chanced upon a curious 17th-century book on the subject of chirology, that is, the discourse or language of the kairos, or hand, while searching for another early modern book in a digital archive. Its boisterous 72-word title begins as follows. Chirologia, or the natural language of the hand, composed of the speaking motions and discoursing gestures thereof, whereunto is added chironomia, or the art of manual rhetoric, before rambling on for 44 more words. Confronted by such grandiloquence, one cannot help but chuckle, as I did at first sight, and one's amusement only increases when in the opening sentences the author, physician and natural philosopher John Bulwer, confidently asserts that he solved the riddle of Babel. Unlike the language of the tongue, Bulwer contends, manual rhetoric is a common human code, possessing the universal character of reason and being generally understood and known by all nations. Thus one could, on this account, travel anywhere in the world and expect to converse freely and immediately by hand alone. Bulwer is due our respect as a pioneering thinker about the education of the deaf, the subject of a subsequent book. Yet the chirologia has glaring problems. 
beginning with the unresolved question as to why one would need a book on manual rhetoric in the first place if the language of the hand is already generally understood and known by all nations. Coming upon chirologia under present circumstances, however, I found myself sympathetic to Bulwer's attempt to make of the hands a substitute and vice-regent of the tongue. Aren't we all engaging in chirology now? So I find myself reading the book intermittently throughout the semester, delighting in both its oddity and the light it throws upon current efforts to use our hands, among other body parts, to make up for the obscured communications of the mouth. A great part of the pleasure of reading chirologia arises ironically from Bulwer's copious use of the words that his techniques are designed to supplant. The book catalogues scores of the hand's shapes and motions, each gesture assigned a number, given a Latin title, illustrated in various charts, proven through classical, biblical or medical citations, and defined using lists of verbal synonyms that read like entries in a thesaurus. Consider, for example, his gesture number four, the admirer. To throw up the hands to heaven is an expression of admiration, amazement and astonishment, used also by those who flatter and wonderfully praise, and have others in high regard or extol another's speech or action. Or number 19, the suffrago. To hold up the hand is a natural token of approbation, consent, election and of giving suffrage. Or number three, ploro. To wring the hands is a natural expression of excessive grief, used by those who condole, bewail and lament. Better still is number seven, explodo. To clap the fist often on the left palm is a natural expression used by those who mock, chide, brawl and insult, reproach, rebuke and explode, or drive out with noise, commonly used by the vulgar in their bickerings as being the scold's saunting dialect and the loud natural rhetoric of those who declaim at Billingsgate, a ward of London known for the vulgar idioms of its fishmongers. Entries also discuss holding out the hands hollow in the manner of a dish to beg, slapping a hand on the thigh in anger or grief, holding an outstretched hand over another in a threatening manner, and shaking hands to show friendship, peaceful love, benevolent salutation, entertainment and bidding welcome reconciliation, congratulation, giving thanks, valediction and well-wishing. A separate list of dactylogia chronicles various finger-focused gestures, including number four, extollo. To hold up both the thumbs is an expression importing a transcendency of praise. As that list suggests, many of Bulwer's motions remain a part of our manual vocabulary. If gestures like holding one's hands up to heaven are not universal exactly, then they're nonetheless enduring. And while Bulwer's manual rhetoric hasn't solved the problem of masked communication, I can report that reading Chirologia and studying its charts has made me more sensitive to the gestures of my interlocutors. I can now even name certain manoeuvres that I observe among my students, including the classic solikite kogito, to rue or scratch the head with a hand signifying anguish or trouble of mind or conscientera firmo, to lay the hand open upon our heart, and impatentia prodo, to apply the hand passionately unto the head as a sign of anguish, sorrow, grief, impatience and lamentation, used also by those who accuse or justify themselves. Unfortunately, I've also seen dolorem noto, 
holding the hands upon the loins, sides or hip, expressing some pain in those regions of the body. And as one teaching during a pandemic, I'm grateful that we've long since abandoned certain thinking poses, at least in public, including invenzione labori, the finger in the mouth gnawn, that is gnawed, and sucked, a gesture of serious and deep meditation, repentance, envy, anger, and threatened revenge. But my most significant discovery while perusing the Chirologia concerns the sixth gesture among the Dactylogia, Indico. Bulwer defines it as follows. The forefinger put forth, the rest contracted to a fist, i.e. to point, is an expression of command and direction, a gesture of the hand most demonstrative. Pointing is such a basic element of communication that most of us take it for granted. If any gesture has a claim to being a universal expression, this one would be it. Indeed, in a series of highly influential books, the psychologist Michael Tomasello has made such a claim. In The Cultural Origins of Human Cognition, Tomasello asserts that the simple act of pointing to an object for someone else for the sole purpose of sharing attention to it is a uniquely human communicative behaviour. By pointing, and of course looking where others point, humans create what Tomasello has memorably dubbed the joint attentional scene. The paradigmatic such scene features a parent and a 9-12 to month old in which the parent holds up or points to an object and the infant becomes aware of not only the object but the fact of the parent's attention to and intentions toward it. Pointing thus occasions an intersubjective event which the child learns to reproduce for the purpose of directing the parent's attention. For Tomasello, pointing is not just most demonstrative, but most collaborative. Which brings us back to where we began. While reading Bulwer, I realised I had gone a year of teaching without putting forth my forefinger and contracting the other four fingers into a fist. There's no point in pointing on Zoom. You can direct your index finger only at the camera, which seems accusatory, or at things that belong in your own workplace which calls attention to the fact that you're not occupying the same room as your interlocutors. A Zoom call is, at best, an approximation of a joint attentional scene. It's participants having to work against the fact that their devices have been designed to allow them to flip easily between multiple information streams. As Tomasello observes, the joint attentional scene is by its very nature an exercise in reducing stimuli. The interaction between the people in the scene being promoted by the fact that their attention is directed at a limited number of objects, perhaps only one. Indico is powerful because it narrows the scene. The restrictions of in-person teaching, I'm learning, are its paradoxical strength. While I can't always be certain of what's happening under my students' masks, I can track the movements of their eyes. I can point them to the board to the book, to some image projected on the clunky common screen in the front of the classroom. I can invite them to look at what I am looking at, and I can offer them the chance to direct my attention to what they notice there, or to direct my attention to some other object in our common view. The pandemic has without a doubt demonstrated the great strides that digital technology has made both in interface design and infrastructure. Yet it's also offered an opportunity to appreciate anew what we can achieve 
simply by gathering in one place and making use of the familiar tools attached to our persons. The hand directs attention, renews affection, and speaks our grief. So too does Protego. The extended hand invites others to enter the scene. That was Talk with the Hand by Richard Hughes Gibson for the Hedgehog Review on the 15th of November 2021. Read by Sharon Bott for Curio.